Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Midcliffe Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now my guest today is Linda Doyle who has just this week been elected the first woman provost of Trinity College Dublin in its 429-year history. Linda's a native of Toker in Cork City, a graduate of UCC, and now Professor of Engineering and the Arts in Trinity. She takes over as what is effectively the CEO of the university at a very challenging time for third-level education in the country. Linda, you're very welcome and congratulations on your election. Thanks a million, Mick. I'm absolutely delighted. I see during the week, Linda, you said that you look forward to the day when the election of a woman to head up a college like Trinity will not be an extraordinary event. But that's only because people like yourself have beaten a pat. And it's also interesting that the two other candidates on the shortlist were women as well. I mean, the way things are looking, it might be hard for a man to get in on the ballot paper here at all. <laughs> that's that's a fair enough point but i i think um so i think uh the two other candidates were great candidates and that's what i think about them first and foremost um and i suppose there was a sense uh i think in the university that the time had come for change and that uh, that you know it was time for a woman to have a turn at the helm as well so that probably influenced things a bit too but ultimately, you know, going back to what you just said, I think we should, you know, a, a great day will be when they're just spoken about as candidates. Definitely. No, and just in a slightly different context on, on the gender issue, you arrived in Trinity in 1989, I think the year you graduated with a degree in engineering in UCC. Now, as it happens, I was a student of engineering in the same college around the same time. Unfortunately, not as auspicious as yourself. In fact, I'd probably be at the other end of the scale, but that's neither here nor there. What I'm getting at is that I can personally testify that the ratio of men to women in engineering at that time was anywhere from about 8 to 1 to maybe 10 to 1 even in some cases. So that was the environment in which you studied in, Linda. It was completely male-dominated. Now, I presume it has changed since then, but is there still a way to go in relation to what's now called the, the, the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and maths, in yeah. terms of gender? So there is. So when I, you're, you're absolutely right. When I was in UCC, actually, it was a slightly bumper year where we had uh, 11 women out of 55 in electrical engineering. But to be honest, the numbers haven't changed. The ratios haven't changed that much in those topics. And, and, and you know, th- th- there hasn't been, yeah, it, when I look at it now, and if you look at the students now, you'll see the same kind of ratios. If you look at STEM more broadly, there will be more women because you'll bring in subjects like biology, you'll bring in subjects like, um, you know, chemistry, immunology and things like that. So there, there will be more women on average, but in the highly technical subjects, there's still a huge way to go. And you may know, so I was director of one of these national research centres, one called Connect. So there's um 16 or 17 of those centres in Ireland, and I would have been the first woman to direct one. Uh, the second one was directed, the second directed by a woman was directed from UCC, actually, uh, but there haven't been any others. So it gives you a real sense as well of how it hasn't hugely changed on that front. 
Why do you think that is? It's hard to say because there have been lots of great initiatives about, you know, uh, girls in tech and, you know, women into science and things like that. Um, the very highly technical subjects do, for some reason, still remain that way. Now, personally, um, I didn't think like that when I started. I went to an open day in UCC and somebody was talking about electrical engineering and actually I had never heard of it. And I just thought, oh, that sounds like something I'd like to do. Um, so I suppose if people are able to come to something and not really think about it and the wider context and just think about purely is it something they would like, I think that that helps a lot. But it's hard to say exactly why it is that still. And if I really knew the answer to that, I would have been able to do more about changing it. <laughs> you know, so so there, there are lots of great initiatives. Um, you know, there's initiatives uh, by funding agencies, there's initiatives by schools to drive it in a different direction. Um, and it's so important, I think, that women are technically literate um, because so many decisions that we make these days are technical. And it's so important to have a say in those decisions, whether or not you're an engineer. So, um, it you know, very, very important area to focus on. It is, it is indeed. Yeah, it is surprising, actually, that in, in, in that respect. You're from Toker in Cork. Your, your dad was a printer with the examiner. T- tell me about growing up. Was there anything there that planted the seeds of a life in academia? Um, that's that's a funny question. I suppose I was always interested in teaching. My brothers are a good bit younger than me, and I uh, I remember when I was really young, uh, getting a book called "Teach Your Baby How to Read" for one of my brothers, uh, and I was convinced. Apparently, the trick at the time was to write things in red letters and put them on a wall. Now I think I managed to teach him how to read one word, <laughs> but um, but uh, I, I suppose I always had that kind of interest in 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 kind of things academic and teaching as I, I was a nerdy child let's face it right so. <laughs> as you said engineering wasn't something it, it would have been more perhaps academia focused and technically focused in terms of the engineering or anything yeah so I was in in school and in secondary school I was really interested in science subjects and I think I, I always had that kind of the draw and that that direction. Uh, and as I said, I went to an open day at UCC and, and I, I suddenly kind of made sense of, of the things that were on offer and said, oh, yes, I would like that. But I didn't have a kind of clear path that that's exactly what I wanted to do when I was younger. Um, and I did actually work when I graduated first. I worked in industry. I worked in Siemens in Munich. You know, you probably remember the time yourself. Uh, everyone went abroad yeah. to work uh, in, in the 80s. Um, and I went to Siemens in Munich. But I knew when I got there that industry wasn't for me and I really wanted to get back to academia. So there was always that huge pull there. Was there a tradition of going to university in your family? So no. So mum had to leave school when she was really young, uh, tw- uh, 12 or 13. Um, and dad obviously did an apprenticeship as, uh, as a printer. But my mother really regretted that she had to leave school and found that very, very hard. And she got to, actually, she did... Um, she did women's studies, a women's studies certificate in, in, in UCC years later and did geology, funnily enough, a, a funny combination. Um, but, you know, had this huge yearning to get back. And I suppose from that perspective, education was always something that was considered really important in the family, even though my parents hadn't had that tradition and something that uh, we were always interested in. And mum then, when she later on in life, uh, you know, uh, got to do that stuff, just loved it. And it was kind of transformational for her. And after UCC, as you said, you went to Siemens for a year in Germany. The, the interesting thing, I suppose, there is when you look at the time you're talking about late 80s into the 90s, it was really when technology was taking off. It was the birth of Silicon Valley to some extent. You weren't attracted by, by, by that. Certainly been far more lucrative route to go down one way or the other. <laughs> that's, you're, you're, yeah, that's true. Um, I 
I suppose always, I mean, the great thing about being in academia was, first of all, is the teaching piece. And, and, and you know, there's something about what I was interested in that is about teaching students. But there's the research side. And I mean, there is nothing, I think, I think it's a huge privilege that you can just intellectually follow an idea, you know, because you're interested in it. And, 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 and that really did attract me. So I was much more attracted to the teaching and the research aspects than actually working in industry, even though I have worked with spin-out companies and things, you know, in, in, in the past. And the other thing uh, that I think is very interesting about your career, Linda, that you're a professor of engineering and the arts. Now, for some people would, would think that they're an unusual combination. I think actually they're, they're great in some ways. How did that come about? Well, I suppose you're you're actually uh, you uh, are emblem as uh, represent that yourself coming from engineering and now working in media, well, <laughs> but um, it came about I suppose over time. So I I think technology is fantastic and really interesting, and telecoms is the area I'm in, um, you know, mobile communications and stuff like that. But over time, I was less interested in the technology for technology's sake itself. So I was more interested in, we'll say, policy, the economics around technology, and eventually that just got broader into. Um, as contesting technology, you know, you know, uh, as technology develops, I think it's really, really important that you question how that development is going. So I found working with artists and creative arts practices a really good way of doing that. So I was very luckily able to set up a group within my research centre, which was mainly focused on telecommunications, but also brought in artists called OMG, the Orthogonal Methods Group. But um, it, it has kind of art people with arts backgrounds, visual arts, uh, writers, um, designers who who all want to look at technology through those lenses in different ways. So we worked like through creating uh, exhibitions, through uh, writing uh, and through working in different ways by bringing artists and, and, and technologists together to comment on technology. And I presume you, you'd be very much an advocate for them complementing each other so. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I mean, certainly what I find as well, you, you probably notice this yourself, that people people have different vocabularies and the different disciplines that they're in. And when you bring a different vocabulary to something, you start to understand it and make meaning uh, about it in different ways. And through working with the different disciplines, even if you're looking at the, you know, similar problems, you see new things. So for me, they're hugely complementary. So so the PhD students who would have worked with me, half of them are engineers and, and computer scientists, and the other half actually would come from arts and art backgrounds. So I always found that really, really productive. And when you say that they, they, they come from arts backgrounds, those PhD students, are, are, are they studying in the arts area as well for, for, for the doctorates? So when you do a doctorate, right, one of the great things about doing a doctorate is you could think a doctorate is like you do a deep dive into a topic, okay? And essentially you have to have somebody who supervises you in that. And even though, so, so these people would come and work in an engineering or computer science and statistics school, but the, the deep dive they would be taking would be kind of very interdisciplinary. So for example, um, uh, I have a person, you're going to laugh at this, but her, 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 her PhD is about rubbish bins and uh, but it's about actually smart uh, cities and, and kind of the multiple identities a bin takes on when it's embedded with sensors and when it when it kind of is, uh, I suppose, coordinating um, rubbish collections, you know, and, and how that changes the city and how it changes the governance of the city and it changes the perception for good and for bad. 
And this person, Fiona McDermott, is her name, fantastic student, but she would bring those kind of multiple perspectives from urban planning, from architecture, from design to bear on thinking about that. Whereas I, as an engineer, traditionally would have just talked about it from a sensor point of view and the sensors in the bin and, and a kind of maybe more singular dimension perspective to it. So, so, so they work in engineering and computer science and statistics spaces, but they would be taking a multidisciplinary, I suppose, perspective on the topic. And are you fairly unique in that respect, so I think I am the only professor of engineering arts in the world, but um, <laughs> but but there are people. No, there are people. There there is fantastic places around the world where people do combine. Um, and I mean traditionally, um, arts and sciences were together, and they kind of artificially became pulled apart. And I think you know when you look at all of the problems that we face today, whether you're talking about COVID or whether you're talking about climate change, you know they're all only tackled through multidisciplinary perspectives. You know, so and I think that notion of kind of that multidisciplinary way of looking at things is just so crucial. Like you see in COVID, it's it's not just about the vaccines and the immunology. It's about behavior. It's about culture and the lack of it at the moment. It's about, um, you know, it's about how people learn. It's about homeschooling. All of those things matter. It's not just about one thing. Yeah. And just on the subject of the arts, I mean, there is a school of thought in, in some areas in terms of third level education, the arts and the humanities in a broader sense that they, they, they don't have the same uh, status, perhaps, as they used to previously, that there's been a certain shift towards perhaps the, the, the type of disciplines that would be more directly associated with the workplace and, and, and the evolving workplace. I mean, do you buy into that or do you think there's a case there? So I think what you're saying is true but wrong. Okay, right, that's the best right. way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there are, you know, there is. So, one of the things I am very interested in in this notion of, um, some people call it epistemic injustice, and it's it's kind of the privileging of certain forms of knowledge making over others. And I think in the world we live in, which is very tech oriented and very STEM oriented at times, that 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 certain topics can be privileged and be given you know, given more credence. Um, and you see that as well in terms of how things are funded. So when you go to do research, you will see that there's funding in certain areas over other areas. Um, but ultimately, one of the most wonderful things I think about a university like Trinity is that it's a comprehensive university where all disciplines exist. And as I said to you just a minute ago, when it comes to tackling the, the problems of the world that we face, um, those disciplines have such important roles to play. And even if you look at it, I mean, I'll give you an example. In Trinity, we have an area called environmental humanities. Um, and, in you know, you can look at the environment from a purely scientific point of view, but you also need to look at it in a kind of cultural and historical context, uh, you know, to understand where, we're, where we came from and the meaning of things and where we're going. So, so, so I think it's just so important to, to, to have those disciplines come to bear um, and to push back against what you said earlier um, so that they all, I think, have their space. And OK, on, on that level, I see what you're saying and, and you're speaking for Trinity and, and what you have there in, in a broader sense in terms of the third level and not just even in this country. That perception is there. Is there any uh, is there any truth to it in a broader level, do you think? No, I don't think so, because if you look, if you look at the, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be the case. You know, if you look at what we face now, right, uh, you're interviewing me here, OK, and we could, um, you know, fake news is so predominant. If you think of things like deep fakes, where now you can even have a video that looks like I'm saying things and putting words into my mouth and sounds exactly like me. Um, and when I think of the way the world is evolving, when I think of the huge amounts of data and, you know, the surveillance capitalism that's all around us, I think, you know, there's an even more need in the world today for kind of the critical thinking 
that's often born out of, you know, the kind of art subjects that you're, you're, you're talking about. So to me, even in the wider world, there's a greater justification for that mix of topics rather than just a narrow focus on a subsection of those. Well, I couldn't agree more, but I'm just wondering, is that shift there happening despite that? In, in your opinion, in, as, as I say, in yes. the broader education system? I certainly know, for example, um, you know, I'm, I am I was a judge at the BT Young Scientist and one of my brothers was saying to me, you know, he'd love if there was an equivalent thing for kind of history or for, you know, if there was a kind of competition exactly. with kids all across. So so, so to a certain extent, I do think you, you can see certain trends, um, you know, in school and in education that people are focused on some areas more than others. Um, and it might be, uh, you know, I think it would probably, I, I think you bring up a very good point that it would be good to think about how that could be rebalanced a bit. Yeah. And a sort of attached that in one way is the whole issue of funding and specifically funding in terms of third level. Um, it's at a critical stage at the moment, isn't it? It is. I mean, the you know, the the uh, the higher education sector has been underfunded for decades, really, and it's never gotten back to kind of, a, a, you know, I suppose a good level. Um, and I think the higher education sector has stood Ireland really, really well in terms of how it's educated its population. And, you know, Ireland is a very different country now than it was even back in the 80s because of, uh, I think, a lot to do with education and, and, and other things. So so for me, it does need proper investment by the state. And that would be something I'd be really, really focused on. OK, when you say investment by the state, now, that, that was one of the options. The Cassell's report, it's, That's got, right, it's yeah. gathering dust now. It's been out yeah. so long. Um, another thing that was thrown into the mix there was the whole area of student loans. Are yeah. The possibility of student fees. We know there's already the registration fee, but which, let's be fair, even prior to fees being abolished in the 90s, the equivalent, it certainly doesn't cover anything near that. Where would you stand on the whole issue of fees or student loans? So uh, in the Cassell's report, you know, you're right, there are the three. Uh, so there's the income contingent loans, the fees, and then greater investment for the government. And for me, it's all about greater investment for the government. So when I look at the income contingent loans, if you look at any of the research that's done on that, you know, uh, it all points to that process going, you know, reducing access, uh, penalising the people who are already going to be stuck, making an, a more negative impact on people who will accrue more loans over the lifetime because they start off from a bad position in, in the first place. And there's some fantastic reports actually written that go through that in detail that look at countries like Australia and other countries that have had them in place for, for, for years. Um, I think that there's plenty of proof that that's not a good way to go. I don't think it's a good uh, idea to increase the fees. And um, I read actually the last comment I read in the Cassell's report was a parliamentary budgetary report that was a I think 2019, um, where, you know, it acknowledged that the government itself has ruled out increasing fees and ruled out in con uh, income contingent loans. So has left on the table the greater investment. And you probably know that that, that report has been sent off to Europe um, uh, for a qualified analysis and is due back sometime in the next few months. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But the government itself actually had ruled out those two things, which I thought was good. OK, I'm just coming at that from a slightly different perspective, Linda. Uh, we go back to the abolition of fees in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. The stated case for doing so was to make a third level more accessible, particularly to those in the lower socioeconomic groups who would be just above the threshold, for example, of getting a grant. As far as I can see, most of the research in that respect has said that people in that cohort, it hasn't increased access at all in that respect. So was that a retrograde step? 
you know, when it happened first at the time, I wasn't sure whether it was going to deliver that either. But I don't think it. I don't think it is. I mean, I, I just think it is so important. You know, there was a time, for example, in Ireland where we thought that, you know, you shouldn't have free access to secondary school. And it seemed an anathema that that would be the case. And I think there is nothing better you can do for the country than make it easy to go to third level education. Um, so I don't think it's a retrograde step. And I also think in some cases, some of the access issues are much more systematic and you have to begin earlier on to address them. So it's not just a case of doing that. But certainly if you were to put fees in place, it would provide an extra barrier. Um, so maybe just stepping back from what I just said there, um, the systematic things. And I remember noticing this myself even uh, when I was young, you know, sometimes opportunities are ruled in and out for you by the time you're even 10 or 11. And and that's where the systematic work needs to needs to happen so that those opportunities remain open. And then when you get to the, the point in which you can take up those opportunities, I think having a, a having a barrier like fees would not be good. Yeah, definitely. And just one more issue on that. I mean, and it's the scenario that's painted sometime of people, for example, who, who'd be in the the uh, low skilled area or whatever, um, people, you know, working semi skilled, low skilled area. They're effectively, if, if it's bigger proportion comes from general funding, they're effectively subsidising to a greater extent those whose uh, education, the third level would cost the most, for example, those perhaps who are studying in the area of law and sciences and medicine, etc. Mm. Is there a lack of fairness there? You see that, that there's an argument put forward from that respect as well. I, I can understand that, you know, um, I, anyone paying tax, we are, it's the taxpayers who actually, you know, are obviously funding what it is we do. Um, and I can understand anyone asking that question. Um, but I think ultimately for a country, and if you look at us coming out of COVID, okay, anything we can do to lift the country out of where it is now uh, and get the country back on track will ultimately be beneficial for all. And I think a lot of the things we're talking about there are, you know, moving forward, looking at the green economy, looking at new ways of doing things, looking at the next kinds of jobs, making sure that Ireland is actually, uh, you know, there's that people in Ireland can avail of jobs that are higher up the food chain um, rather than, you know, um, I suppose so that we stay competitive and, and so that there's options for people. And to me, that is hugely linked with a thriving uh, higher education system. Now, I, I absolutely agree that there are more things we can do as well in terms of further education more generally, in terms of apprenticeships and in terms of investing in those, um, because there's many ways to contribute that don't all just involve going through um, third level education. But ultimately, I think for the country, I think an investment in this area is not just an investment in me or the people who come through the university, but a wider investment for the country to thrive is the way I look at it. Yeah, and you can well imagine as well that one thing the government will probably look towards in some respect is perhaps looking to the likes of business to increase funding, perhaps even to research or directly or whatever. And then you're in a scenario is where how correct is the balance between the input that business might have whether that is leveraged in certain ways in on a university that there's more concentration on the areas back again to technology, those areas that are more geared towards the workplace. There's issues there as well, isn't there? There are, but you see, I think one of the things that happens in a university uh, setting or a third level or higher education setting is that we don't know what the future will bring. And through creating kind of the right basis of education, you're you're enabling people to adapt. So so look at the COVID situation, okay? 
So if you look at what the higher education sector has done over COVID, it's a whole wide range of things. So firstly, there's a whole chunk of people from it who went back to the front line. Then there's a whole chunk of people who've actually pushed research and whether it's around immunology or, or vaccines. There's a whole chunk of people who have um, been doing the research around, you know, schooling and, you know, uh, how kids are faring. Um, there's a whole load of work on mental health to, to do with it. There's a whole load of people who did contract tracing. There were contract tracing centres set up in universities. We gave equipment back into the sector when it was needed for um, for testing. Uh, certainly earlier on, uh, PPE was donated and you only have to turn on the TV and you'll see somebody from, you know, from the higher level sector talking and explaining to the public or populating a lot of the scientific committees that were made. So nobody five years ago thought there was going to be a pandemic like COVID. So it wasn't like they were taking the sector and preparing us all for COVID and business wasn't, you know, saying, OK, this is going to be the big thing. Let's all focus on it. But what it did in investment that was made is there was investment in expertise. There was investment in adaptability. There was investment in being able to think on your toes. And as a result, you know, the sector as a whole was able to mobilise in, you know, very, very effectively, actually, uh, in many, many different ways, as did other sectors, by the way. I'm not saying it was the only sector that did that. But there's an example of something that you can't plan for. And, you know, the example we talk about now that, you know, the top 10 jobs, in, you know, in the future don't exist today. So so that's what we're really there for, rather than to say you're going to be trained to do this thing and build this widget in this particular way. And I mean, you know, uh, you, you spoke yourself earlier about, you know, studying civil engineering and you're working where you're working now. And it's not that I, I wouldn't say you're civil engineering. I hope it wouldn't be. It was a waste of an education <laughs> for you at no, all. No, no, no. But, you know, it makes you think, it makes you organise it. It's how you structure yourself and, you know, it makes you adapt. So, so that's how I think about the education an awful lot. Yeah, no. And the other thing um, is that the, there's legislation proposed and there, there's the government certainly seem that they would like to exercise more control in terms of universities and that that is something that you, you would have issues around. It is, yeah. So so the proposed, legis- there's a consultation document where this proposed legislation is in and I have issues for a number of reasons. So I, I'd say up front, of course, it's absolutely proper that universities and uh, institutions are accountable and, you know, it's proper that there's proper governance. The issue for me is there's many issues with the, the proposed document, consultation document. So number one, it kind of has one particular view of what good governance looks like. And it's saying, really, there's only one way to be governed in a good way. The board has to look in a particular, you know, it has to be a particular size. It has to have a particular makeup. And that's it. And on top of that, I'm not going to provide any evidence as to why that board is going to suddenly make you much better than the way you are already. So so it's not that I, I have any objection to good governance. It's not that I have any objection to accountability. It's that there are many different ways to do that. And I think Ireland has something to benefit from people doing that in different ways, you know, not all being the same and, and being able to differentiate. So that, that's one thing that I would be very worried about in, 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 in that leg- proposed legislation. But I suppose from the government's point of view, they, they, you can well imagine they might suggest that, uh, as you say, increased funding, it's needed if it's to come directly yeah. from the exchequer. Uh, inc- they would, might suggest that increased accountability might be required as a quid pro quo yeah. as they would see it. So uh, I have no, no objection to that um, in, in terms of accountability. And I would kind of probably go as far to say that the accountability that we go through is enormous as it is. So, you know, maybe the listeners people who are not in an academic environment might not realise it, but 
every single thing you do was constantly evaluated on an individual, as a group, in a school and as the institution as, as a whole wide. So if I get any research funding, I have to regularly report on it. It gets audited. Um, you know, the funding agencies uh, keep an eye on it. It has to be independently audited. Um, you know, I have to report back what impact I made. I am, I'm judged again as to whether I'm good enough to get that again. So there's just one example. But that kind of scrutiny uh, happens a huge amount in, in, in institutions. And, and, and we have all sorts of structures in place in Trinity, as they would in the other um, higher education institutions, to ensure that our money is being spent wisely, um, to ensure uh, that we're making the most of things. Um, we have our own internal processes and we're constantly valued externally. If you have European funding, there's external audits from Europe as well. So there's all sorts of things at play um, and all sorts of scrutiny in place. Um, and, you know, of course, you can improve things at any time. And I have no problem with that. Um, I suppose the challenge for me is that, you know, as I said to you earlier, A, there's only one way to do it. And, you know, be a, a kind of a worrying about an overreach that, you know, you'll be reaching in and saying this is how you should be doing your research and this is how you should be doing your teaching. And would you see Trinity being in a position, Linda, where they might get an exemption in relation to some of these things? Or are you pushing for this, that the whole legislation as such should be changed so everybody's on um, a level playing field in that yeah. respect? So Trinity operates slightly differently. So it's not, you know, it's not part of the National University of Ireland and it has an exemption currently through a private bill um, for some of the things that it does. And and part of, uh, and one way to, to, to deal with the problem is to continue that because we have a slightly different structure than everybody else. But, but, for me, there are also things in that proposed legislation that I think all higher uh, educational institutions should be worried about and working constructively with minister and with government on. And, you know, part of it also refers back to the question you were asking me earlier about jobs and kind of usefulness and what we, we should focus on. I mean, we've been thinking a lot in Trinity about um, climate change and biodiversity and the kind of the way you might actually have to change fundamentally and systematically what you do and how you operate, you know, to deal with the realities of the world that we live in. And when I read the proposed legislation, there's kind of no sense of that dynamism, of that kind of change that might be needed and that way of thinking that could completely cut across some of the suggestions that are there. Um, that I think by giving somebody a little bit of an autonomy, they're able to kind of make those make those decisions and do something new and different. And that that slightly different structure you're talking about with Trinity, does that go back to Trinity's historical standing? Yeah, so we have our statutes and we have a particular, in the statutes, our board is defined. And the, the fact, actually, we had an election for provost, that's that. So so just so people are probably familiar with this, but we use the word provost rather than president, but they mean the same thing. Um, we elect the provost and we have elected roles. So there's a kind of particular ethos that comes from our historic um, standing comes from the statutes that govern the university that have that very democratic element in it. Um, and I suppose define the kind of culture of the university and and myself and others in the university, you know, I suppose they want that culture protected. So, of course, there's a pro and con to everything. But, you know, the election that we had recently for Provost, the entire university was talking about the future of the university. They were analysing what was working, was not working, what's good, what's bad, coming up with ideas, you know, thinking outside the box. And I would argue that you would rarely have a whole institution all engaged over that number of months about its future in that kind of a way. 
And, and that's, you know, that kind of self-reflecting critical way. I mean, it's completely like the whole thing is everyone's criticizing everything in, in detail for the purposes of making it better. And you don't see that. So that's something to hold on to. And that's why I think in Trinity we'll say, look, there's something good here about this. Of course, there's tons of things that can be approved and better about it. But there is something good that we want to preserve. I just wonder, is, <laughs> historically, that kind of, I suppose, liberal thinking, in mm-hmm. some way you could put it, was that what scared the likes of John Charles McQuaid and those who <laughs> yeah. uh, told the flock to stay away from that place? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> One other thing, does it touch on you in, in respect? This, it's historical again, and that's the Shannon. Um, yeah. Three seats for Trinity, three for the other national universities, I think, none for the newer yeah. universities like UL and DCU, and the whole concept of universities having. Um, seats in the Shannon anyway is another thing that's controversial. Where do you stand in terms of that? So, um, I mean, this is a personal opinion rather than rep- representing an opinion of the university. I, I, I do think that needs to be significantly reformed. I don't think it reflects um, the kind of democracy that we stand for in the university ourselves. So I can't argue for more, more democracy for ourselves and less for everyone else. So I do think it does need to be reformed and take into account, um, you know, the changing landscape. Okay. And yourself as provost, would you see a scenario? I mean, I, I've heard this said in some places that some of your predecessors would have been considered to be a bit inaccessible. Yeah. Would, would you see that as being something that you would like to change? So first of all, I would love to th- like to think I'm completely accessible um, and I want to make sure that's the case within Trinity and externally. And um, I mean, one of the fantastic things about even being on this podcast with you um. And the fact that I suppose there was the change with the woman is I've gotten to talk to, you know, kind of more outlets than maybe you would have had before now. So I feel the process has already started. Um, I sometimes think, you know, I, I mean, when I was in UCC, people in Trinity seemed like from a totally different world. So, you know, and you and 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 to a certain extent, some of that is just an image and some of it's so totally wrong. And people there are as accessible as, as everywhere and anywhere else. Um, and I, I, I told a story the other day when I had to, um, uh, when I gave the acceptance speech, the first time I went to Trinity, I, I was going there to just check out whether I could do a postgrad. And I remember sitting in front square on a step thinking, oh, my God, I'm never going to fit in here. You know, um, and the people I've encountered there are wonderful and fantastic and open and engaging and, you know, ordinary and extraordinary like anywhere else. Um, so I do think we have a job of work to do to make sure that people see that. Um, and I think to make sure that Trinity is open and welcoming um, and to make sure that, that that people feel we can engage. And, and I think you can never do enough of that. So so I would certainly be pushing on that front. OK. And just finally, Linda, look forward 10 years. If there was one thing you would like to see at the end of your tenure that doesn't exist now or needs drastic improvement from now or something that you your own little legacy and you don't even have to think of it in those terms but you know what I'm saying is is there one particular thing that you'd like to focus on that respect I mean I'd love to I'd love to be able to say that we have a properly sustainable uh third level system or higher education system in Ireland that's that that's sustainably funded and that Trinity and other institutions can all, you know, excel for for the country and for the world. So that's what I'd like to like to see. And I mean, I know that's a tall order, but it's something that I really want to passionately work for um, for ourselves in Trinity um, and for others. I've no doubt you'll give it a great shot. Linda Doyle, thank you very much for joining us. 
That's it for today, folks. I want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. Yeah, get us on all the usual platforms. And why not take out a digital subscription with the Irish Examiner? As they say, you won't regret it. We'll talk next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.